Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 54. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a truth how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Once again, we're privileged to have a local Idaho author join us for the podcast. Carol Kerr lives just a bit north of us. And she's going to share two of her writings today. Because we're recording this podcast in the midst of football season, she'll begin with a poem she's titled, Bronco Grandma. For you Colorado Bronco fans, I have a feeling this poem is about the Boise State Broncos rather than the Denver Broncos. Is that right, Carol? Yes, it was written for the Boise State Broncos. However, I am a big Denver Bronco fan, so it can go either way. And I am a grandma, too. "'Twas the night of the game. They were out on the blue. The ball was teed up. The anthem was through. The teams were lined up, facing each other. The stands were full, parents, sisters, and brothers. When all of a sudden, from out of the crowd, a voice rang out, clear, shrill, and loud. "'Let's go, Broncos!' rang a southern drawl. "'And for goodness sakes, hang on to the ball!' People turned in their seats to see who it was, with the clear voice heard above the crowd's buzz. Searching eyes scanned faces, each and all, until they all landed on a little grandma. She wore an orange bronco shirt, orange hose, black shoes, and a blue woolen skirt. She stared back at them as they stared at her. No one made a noise, no one made a stir. A blob of nacho cheese was stuck on her cheek, Two hot dogs and a large pop were beside her seat. As people stared, the game seemed to stall until she stood up and yelled, Let's play ball! There was a roar from the crowd as the kick was away, and they never fumbled play after play. The Broncos gained another great win when they listened to the fan with cheese on her chin. Thanks for joining us today, Carol. I have a couple of questions for you. Let's start with, what got you interested in writing? Was there a where or a how or a why? What, what was that impetus? Well, thank you for having me today. I got started in writing when I started college at, at the age of 30. I took a freshman class that we had to write a lot in. And my professor was blown away with how well I wrote. The college came up with a new award for fiction writers, and I won the very first one. And I was very privileged, but that was the time I guess I figured out maybe I had a gift. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I noticed that both of the, th- the pieces you're reading today have to do with grannies. <laughs> oh, what's, uh, what's going on there? <laughs> 
um, I have two grandsons, and all my friends seem to be grannies too. So I think grannies uh, want to have more fun, and so here we are. <laughs> all right. And now Carol will, will read her book, The Five Grannies Go to the Ball. This is a great, if you've seen it online or in the bookstore or wherever, love the artwork. Now we'll hear how the story goes. Once upon a time in the little kingdom of Shummydum, five grannies lived in a manor on Old Lady Hill. Granny B loved to knit. She made scarves and hats for everyone in the nearby village. Granny Hazel loved to cook and shared her cookies with anyone who came to visit. Granny Kay loved to sew. She made clothes and coats for anyone who needed them. Granny Tran loved to garden and raise such beautiful flowers that people came for miles around to see them. Granny Cleo loved to read. She taught everyone in the village how to read and shared her library with them. They were the smartest people in the kingdom of Shamidam. One day, a messenger boy knocked at the door of the manor. The tall, lean boy looked surprised when Granny B answered the door. Can I help you? Granny B asked. The other grannies came up behind her to see who was there. The boy cleared his throat <clears throat> and read his message. The king of Shamidum invites all unmarried maidens to come to a ball at the palace. The prince wishes to meet young ladies and look for a wife. The ball will be one week from tomorrow. With a bow, the messenger boy got on his horse and rode away. Can we go to the ball? asked Granny Kay. She held her hands as if saying a prayer. Don't be silly, Granny Tran said, putting her hands on her hips. The prince wants to meet young ladies, not old grannies. I feel young, Granny Hazel shouted. Just because I look like an old lady doesn't mean I am one. I think we should go. We could take the young ladies from the village with us, Granny B said. Let's see, there's Jane, the miller's daughter, and there's Helen and Cindy, the baker's daughters, May, the milkman's daughter, Oh, and Jenny, the blacksmith's girl. What a good idea, Granny Cleo exclaimed. The girls are young and beautiful and smart and sweet. We can go to the ball and take them along with us. Then it's settled. We're going to the ball. The grannies clapped and danced around the room. The next day, the five grannies visited the miller, the baker, the milkman, and the blacksmith to ask permission to take their daughters to the ball. Their parents were very happy to let the girls go with the grannies, but all of them said they didn't have money to buy ball gowns. Don't worry about that, Granny Kay told them. We'll make gowns for them. As the grannies were walking home, Granny Tran asked, how can we make gowns for the girls? We don't have much money either. Granny Kay smiled. We all have old gowns we never wear. We'll alter and remake them into new gowns for the girls. We could invite the girls up for tea so they could pick which gowns to use for their dresses. Granny Hazel said, smiling her biggest smile. Grand idea, Granny B said. How fun will that be? Later that day, the grannies carried some of their old ball gowns to the living room. They look quite dated, Granny B sighed, standing back to look at the dresses. 
Don't fuss, ladies, Granny Kay said as she picked one up. I can make them fit and look nice. Elegance is timeless, and the girls will be beautiful in them. Remember, we need to pick which one we will wear, too. Look at this, cried Granny Hazel, bringing a gown in. I always like this gown. I wonder if it still fits. She held it up to her body. I know mine doesn't fit anymore, Granny Cleo said as she came into the room with the gown. I think my gown still fits, said Granny Tran as she held hers up. The other grannies frowned because they didn't like it when Tran reminded them she had kept her slim figure and they had not. Let's get to work, ladies, Granny Kay said. They washed and dried the gowns so they would be ready for the girls to try on. The next day, the girls came over to choose a gown to be remade while they had tea and cookies. Granny Kay made drawings of how each girl wanted her gown to look. The other grannies measured each girl so that the dresses would fit perfectly. For the next week, the grannies cut and sewed for long hours until at last they had five gowns fit for princesses. They worked on getting their own gowns ready, too. They didn't care that their gowns were out of style. They felt beautiful in them, and that's all that mattered. We'll take our fancy carriage, Granny Tran said as she placed her gown in the trunk. Maybe Jenny's twin brother, Kenny, will drive us. Granny Kay looked up from her sewing. Kenny may need a new suit of clothes. I don't make men's clothing, so what can we do? Granny Hazel set down a plate of sandwiches. I think I have a suit of clothes left from my husband's younger days. Maybe we could use those. The grannies invited Kenny over to try on his suit. It was too big for him, but Granny Kay worked hard to make the suit fit so Kenny could wear it to the ball. The day finally came when they had to leave for the ball. The five grannies and the five girls got into the carriage with their sunbonnets and parasols. Kenny held the reins of the four horses as the people in the village gathered around to say goodbye. The road was rough and bumpy, but no one minded. The excitement of the trip made everyone happy. Up and down and around the hills and over streams, the party carriage went happily along. The only stop that day was for a picnic under a shade tree next to a small stream. They arrived in the city of the king's palace around sunset. They went into the house of Granny Cleo's daughter, Amy. Amy greeted them and showed them to their rooms where they could clean up before a hearty supper of soup and bread. The tired travelers fell into bed and slept soundly. The next morning, everyone got up fresh and rested. A lot of work needed to be done before the ball. Their gowns had to be unpacked and fluffed. Their shoes needed to be polished until they shone. Most of all, Kenny and the girls needed to learn how to ballroom dance. Amy played the piano while the grannies showed the young people how to dance the waltz. At first, they were unsteady, and toes were stepped on many times. But as hours went by, Kenny and the girls danced better and better. At last, everyone was ready to dance at the ball. After a big supper of chicken pot pie... The grannies sent the young people to bed early. They all needed their beauty sleep. Tomorrow would be a busy day. On the morning of the ball, Amy's manor was a center of flurry. Everyone needed to bathe and wash their hair. 
The girls wanted to look their very best. The grannies combed the girls' hair until it was smooth and shiny. They twisted and curled the silky locks and tied them up and back. Then the girls put on their gowns. Thanks to Granny Kay's skill in sewing, the gowns fit them just right. The grannies led the girls to the big mirror standing in the corner. The girls' eyes widened with surprise. Is it really us? Jenny exclaimed, saying what the other girls were feeling. I didn't know we could look this beautiful. The grannies smiled and clapped their hands in happiness. You've always been beautiful on the inside, said Granny Cleo. Now people can see how beautiful you are on the outside. A knock at the door came, and they heard Kenny say, Ladies, your carriage is here. Granny Kay rushed to the door and opened it. There Kenny stood in his suit, looking as good as the prince himself. He made a deep bow. The girls gave squeals of delight and curtsied back. My goodness, Kenny, Granny B said, you are very handsome in your new suit of clothes. Granny Tran agreed. The prince may worry that the girls will like you better than him. Kenny's face turned red, but his smile showed that he was pleased. Thank you, he said. All of you ladies look so lovely. Are you ready to go? Yes, said the girls together. The big night had begun. Lights were shining all over the palace, lighting up the night sky like a bonfire. Kenny drove the carriage up the hill, across the moat, and into the courtyard of the castle. The sound of music drifted through the courtyard, inviting everyone inside. When Kenny pulled up to the door, finely dressed doormen helped the grannies and the girls out of the carriage. They waited in front of the big doors while Kenny parked the carriage. Inside, the ballroom was elegant. Kenny and the girls walked in with their eyes wide with wonder, looking at everything. The people in fine clothes, the tapestries and portraits on the walls, and the white tile floors. Everything was new to them. Young women from all over the kingdom waited in a long line that wound along one side of the ballroom. The prince and the king stood at the front of the line, greeting each young lady. Other guests at the ball waited on the other side of the ballroom, watching as each young woman introduced herself to the prince and the king, curious to see who the prince might choose to be his bride. Kenny wished his friends luck before he walked to the end of the ballroom to stand with the other guests. The grannies and the girls stood in the greeting line, chatting with excitement. Some people pointed and laughed at the grannies and began to make fun of them for waiting in line to meet the prince. The teasing did not bother the grannies, but their young friends were embarrassed by it. A woman came over and frowned. This line is for young women to meet the prince, she told the grannies. You're not supposed to be here. Go over there. Her nose was high in the air. She pointed to the other side of the room. Unmarried maidens of the kingdom were invited to come, Granny Bee said. We're unmarried, and I think we're young. Why can't we meet the prince? The lady rolled her eyes. You're too old, she yelled at them. Or are you too dumb to know that? Granny Cleo frowned and said, Don't be mean to us. We may be old on the outside, but we feel very young on the inside. The lady stomped her foot and went away. 
She was either mad at the grannies for staying in line or mad at herself for not thinking of the idea first. No one knew for sure. Granny Hazel poked Granny Cleo and said, Look at those girls behind the prince. All of the grannies looked at the small crowd of young women. Do they look odd to you? They're all standing funny, Granny B said loudly. Their legs are crossed or they're leaning back in a funny way. They should stand up straight and tall. Shh, not so loud, Jane said in a whisper. Someone might hear you. Those girls stand like that so they look thinner. May added, you didn't like when that woman talked badly about you, so you shouldn't talk badly about other people. It's not nice. You're right, dear, Granny Cleo said. I'm sorry. If we can't say anything good about someone, we should keep our mouths shut. Why are they trying to look thinner? They're already thin, said Granny Hazel. If they were any thinner, we couldn't see them at all. Jenny shrugged her shoulders. It's the style. Helen, May, and Jane and Cindy nodded. I wish healthy was the style, said Granny B. Cleo, Tran, Kay, and Hazel nodded in agreement. The grannies and the girls slowly made their way to the front of the line. The grannies went first so the girls could see what to do. Each granny curtsied low to the king and said, Your Majesty. The king greeted the grannies warmly and welcomed them to the ball. Granny Hazel told the king, Your Majesty, no age limit was given in the invitation. My friends and I may be old on the outside, but we are young at heart. I'm glad you came, said the king, smiling at the grannies. The prince looked very puzzled, but said nothing. Granny Tran said to the prince, May we present Jane, Helen, Cindy, May, and Jenny from our village. Each girl is talented and kind. They make good grades in school. They are respectful to everyone. The granny smiled at the girls, full of pride and joy with their adopted granddaughters. The girls turned all shades of red from the kind praise. Suddenly, a girl pushed her way past the prince and looked at the girls. What are they, servants? They have no sense of fashion. Look at their ugly dresses. And they're a little too fat. None of them are as pretty as me. Send them away, prince. Just a minute, young lady, Granny Cleo said. These girls will leave only if the king asks it. As for you, I'd like to know what skills you have to be queen. The young lady looked surprised to have anyone talk back to her. She looked at the prince and the king. The king waved his hand to show that he wanted to hear her answer. She put her hands on her hips and leaned backward. I wear only the latest fashions, and I always look good. Girl, said Granny B, if that's the best you have to offer, then this kingdom is in trouble. You may look good, but if you don't know how to treat people respectfully or know how to do things for the good of all, then you're not fit to be queen. The young lady stomped her foot and got into Granny B's face. Who are you to tell me I wouldn't make a good queen? The prince says I would, and he's going to be king someday. The king stepped up and pushed the young lady away from Granny B. I am the king now, and I say that you wouldn't make a good queen. The prince looked worried and grabbed the young lady's hand. But father, she's so pretty. I like her. 
The king spoke to the prince, Son, if you think a pretty face is better than a kind heart, then you are not ready to take a bride, and you are not ready to be king. The girl's mouth fell open in surprise. The prince's mouth was open too, but no sound came out. The king spoke to the girl, Go home and learn to work. Learn to care for others. Learn to be a good and useful person. The young lady began to cry and yell and throw a fit. The king waved to the guards to escort her out of the room. They drugged the screaming girl away. Spoiled brat, the king said under his breath. My son, the king said softly to the prince, I'm sorry. I haven't taught you the virtues of being a good king. You can't learn how to run the kingdom by sitting around the castle, so I'm sending you out with my advisors so you can learn from them. But father, the prince said, I'm supposed to find a bride tonight. The king shook his head. First things first. The kingdom and those who live in it must come first. You must learn to be a good man, a good king, and a good husband. Then you may find your bride. If you can't accept that, then I must look to my other sons to rule after me. But father, the prince began. The king held up his hand. Son, do you want to be a good king someday? The prince nodded. Then do what I say. When you are king, you will be glad you listened to me. The prince looked very sad, but agreed to his father's terms. The king turned to the crowd in the ballroom. My people, we all learned something tonight. These lovely grannies have shown us that what we are on the inside is more important than how we look on the outside. They reminded me to make sure my sons and daughters are fit to rule in my stead. That way, we'll always have peace in the kingdom. The people in the ballroom cheered and clapped. The king held up his hand to quiet everyone. The ball is not over yet. Let's have some fun. Band, play some music so we can dance. The band began playing again, and people found partners to dance. The king leaned closer to the five grannies and winked. Shall we dance? Through the night, the king danced with each of the five grannies, smiling and laughing. Jenny, May, Helen, and Cindy danced with other young men from all over the kingdom. Kenny danced with Jane more than with any other girl. They looked very happy together. The night was full of smiles and happiness. Between dances, the people enjoyed the delicious food that was served. It was the best ball ever given by the king. After the ball, the king invited the five grannies to visit him often, which they did. Two years later, the king asked Granny Cleo to marry him. He invited the other four grannies to live at the palace with them. So they sold their house on Old Lady Hill and moved to the palace where they all lived happily ever after. Cindy, Helen, May, and Jenny married young men they met at the ball. The five grannies attended all of their weddings and wished them much happiness. Kenny and Jane were married at the chapel in the village. They lived in the village for many years and were happy until the end of their days. As time went by, the prince discovered that the grannies and his father were right. He worked hard and learned many things. He found his perfect bride and knew that she was worth the wait. When he became king, he was a good king who kept peace in the kingdom, and he and his bride lived happily ever after, too.
Thanks, Carol. That was a great story. I really enjoyed it. Um, before we recorded, uh, you said there's a story behind that story. I think our listeners would enjoy hearing that. Well, thank you. I had a dream one night about my four friends and I, and we're all grannies, that we were in a beauty contest, and we won. And the young girls that were in the contest just had a fit and said, they're old, they're old, why did they win? And the judges said, because they're beautiful on the inside and they know how to do things. So after that dream, I woke up and decided this has to be a book, and that's how this story came to be. That's great. Uh, Thanks again. You can learn more about Carol and her stories at cskjar.com. That's cskjar.com. And now I'll read uh, from Winslow, Wyoming again. We're sort of in the middle of chapter 13. Kate rode with Laura and Dimple to Dimple's house on the other side of the cemetery. Mike and Tramp followed in his pickup, Old Blue. They parked the vehicles just off the road and entered her property through an arbor-topped wrought iron gate. A terrace garden was filled with daffodils and tulips and the vine-draped stone house looked like an English cottage. Multi-pane windows sparkled in the sunshine, and baskets of blossoms hung from the eaves. Dimple opened her plum-colored door with its rounded top and bevel glass window. The others trailed behind her, passing the hand-stitched quotes and watercolor paintings, mostly of flowers that adorned the walls. Kate removed her sunglasses to read a cross-stitched sampler. "'The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save.' He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 There was no question whose home this was. She turned to Dimple. I like your house. It's unique. I think I need more pictures of flowers, don't you? Kate laughed. Definitely. Dimple indicated a large parcel on the couch. As you can see, Mike, I haven't even opened the box. I was afraid I'd break the computer, so I left it on the cantaloupe. Kate saw Mike struggle to suppress a grin. He picked up the box. Do you mind if Tramp wanders around your yard, Dimple? He's been cooped up in the truck all morning. Just make sure the garden gate is latched. I put up a higher fence this year to keep the deer out. However, she scowled, it doesn't discourage the rabbits one iota. Mike switched on Dimple's stereo and lowered the volume. After yet another run-in with Tara Hughes, he needed something to mellow him out. He opened the box. Hats off to Dimple. Not many women her age would build a fence or buy a laptop without knowing how to use it. Maybe in some crazy way the computer would be good for her brain farts, as she termed her mixed-up words. He inserted a disc to install the first program and looked out the window as the disc began to whir. If Dimple hadn't come to his rescue, Tara would still be ranting at him. Maybe he should quit going to church. The woman sucked the love of God right out of him when she showed up at a service. Then there was Kate. What was the deal with her? 
At first she seemed to like his company, but now she acted distant. Why wouldn't she go out with him? Was it his breath or something he said? He heard his mom talking in the kitchen, her voice low. What in the world did you say to break up that argument, Dimple? Mike grinned. When it came to Tara Hughes, his mom always needed to know what was going on. I was a bit feisty, wasn't I? Dimple snorted. But I've had enough of that shrew ranting and raving at Mike. He's like a grandson to me. Mike nodded. Yeah. She'd been a grandma to him as long as he could remember. I told Tara the church parking lot was no place for, that, for a hissy fit, and she should hightail it on home. And I told Mike I couldn't use my calendar until he programmed it, something he promised to do before I ordered it. Mike chuckled, thinking he'd be happy to program Granny Dimple's calendar on her cantaloupe any time she asked. Though she and Mike had nothing to say to each other, Kate enjoyed lunch on the patio with Dimple and the Duncans. The food was delicious and the weather perfect. When they finished, Dimple took Laura to tour her vegetable garden. Kate started after them, but Mike stopped her. Could you come inside with me? I need your help with the computer setup. I don't know anything about computers. He opened the patio screen for her. You know more than you think. They stepped inside. He pointed to the couch. Have a seat on the cantaloupe. I'll stand. No, please. Please sit. He sat at the far end and placed the computer on his lap. She edged onto a cushion. Okay, but I don't understand how I can help. He shifted to look directly at her. I'd like to know why you can't go out with me. So, this isn't about the computer. I thought we could talk while I install programs. Why can't you go out with me? She rubbed her temples. Why are we having this conversation again? It should be obvious. It's not obvious to me. I don't know how they do things in Wyoming, but in Pennsylvania, engaged people don't date other people. He sat back. Oh, I'm sorry. I had no idea you were engaged. I am not engaged. Kate pounded the cushion. You are, for Pete's sake. No, I'm not. They both turned at the sound of the patio screen opening. Laura walked over to the couch. I'm going home now. If Kate wants to stay, can you give her a ride back to the ranch, Mike? Sure. I have another half hour or so to go with the programming. Then I want to show Dimple how to run this machine. Laura rested her hand on Kate's shoulder. It's up to you, Kate. You can ride with either of us. Mike waggled an eyebrow. I promise not to mistake you for my dog again. In spite of the tension between them, Kate laughed. Dimple and Laura looked puzzled. Mike grinned at them. Long story. Kate twisted to look up at Laura. I'm supposed to help with the trail ride later today, but I'd like to hang around for the computer lesson. I might learn something. Mike's pretty savvy when it comes to technology, Laura said, which is a good thing at our house. I have yet to understand the difference between ROM and RAM. She started for the door but stopped. Isn't this your day off, Kate? It is, Kate said, but I haven't been on a horse for years, so I asked Clint if I could help. I thought it would be a good way to get back in the saddle again. Literally. We've discouraged employees from working on their day off, Laura said. I love to ride. If I can help the Wranglers, all the better. Okay, Laura smiled. 
Have a great time. She hugged Dimple. Thanks for the lunch, dear. Delicious as always. After Laura left, Dimple sat in a chair across from Kate. Did you learn to ride in Pennsylvania? Kate rearranged her awkward position to a more comfortable one. My dad made the mistake of buying me cowboy boots when I was young. I loved those boots, and I desperately wanted to wear them while riding a horse. I begged and begged my mom for riding lessons. Finally, she gave in, and my brother and I had lessons twice a week for an entire summer. Have you ridden since then? Dimple asked. Kate shook her head. The lessons came to a rather abrupt halt when my family was killed in a car accident. Dimple's wrinkles contorted with compassion. I had no idea you lost your family. Were you raised in a children's home or by relatives? I wish, Kate sighed. No orphanage or relatives, just a whole bunch of foster homes. Dimple winced. Oh, you poor dent. Is that why you left Pennsylvania? Because you don't have a real home there? Out of the corner of her eye, Kate saw Mike grin, which made it doubly hard for her to keep a straight face. Like I told you when we first met, I'm here to do an internship at the ranch so I can fulfill my marketing program requirements at the university. Kate toyed with the sofa's arm cover. I suppose I also came for nostalgic reasons. My dad bought me those boots while he was on a Wyoming business trip, and my mom ordered a matching outfit from a Western store in Cheyenne. Plus, I love the book Katrina's Wild Pony, which you probably know is a story about a girl who lived on a Wyoming horse ranch. I must have read it 50 times. Dimple nodded. One of my favorites. I read it to my students every year I taught school. I took the book from my first foster home, Kate said, and carried it with me from place to place. When I was sad and lonely, it always had the power to transport me to a happier world. She shrugged. I guess all that coalesced into a lifelong desire to visit Wyoming. Dimple grinned. You're living your dream, Kate. She nodded, even though she'd lost her family and never saw her dog or her boots again. And the book disappeared. She was living her dream. She glanced at Mike, whose eyes were focused on the computer screen. No doubt he'd heard every word. She wanted to kick herself for saying she stole the book. But at least she didn't mention prison. I'll continue with Treasure Island, and I'll be in Chapter 14, but I'll read a little bit of the end of 13. The crews raced for the beach, but the boat I was in, having some start and being at once the lighter and the better man, shot far ahead of her consort and the bow had struck among the short side trees, and I had caught a branch and swung myself out and plunged into the nearest thicket while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards behind. Jim, Jim, I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping, ducking, and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose till I could run no longer. Chapter 14, The First Blow I was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest in the strange land that I was in. I had crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and odd outlandish swampy trees and had now come out upon the skirts of an open piece of undulating sandy country about a mile long 
dotted with a few pines and a great number of contorted trees, not unlike the oak in growth, but pale in foliage like willows. On the far side of the open stood one of the hills with two quaint craggy peaks shining vividly in the sun. I now felt for the first time the joy of exploration. The isle was uninhabited, my shipmates I had left behind, and nothing lived in front of me but dumb brutes and fowls. I turned hither and thither among the trees. Here and there were flowering plants unknown to me. Here and there I saw snakes, and one raised his head from a ledge of rock and hissed at me with a noise not unlike the spinning of a top. Little did I suppose that he was a deadly enemy and that the noise was the famous rattle. Then I came to a long thicket of these oak-like trees, live or evergreen oaks. I heard afterwards they should be called, which grew low along the sand like brambles, the boughs curiously twisted, the foliage compact like thatch. The thicket stretched down from the top of one of the sandy knolls, spreading and growing taller as it went, until it reached the margin of the broad, reedy fen, through which the nearest of the little rivers soaked its way into the anchorage. The marsh was steaming in the strong sun, and the outline of the spyglass trembled through the haze. All at once there began to go a sort of bustle among the bulrushes. A wild duck flew up with a quack, another followed, and soon over the whole surface of the marsh a great cloud of birds hung screaming and circling in the air. I judged at once that some of my shipmates must be drawing near along the borders of the fen. Nor was I deceived, for soon I heard the very distant and low tones of a human voice, which, as I continued to give ear, grew steadily louder and nearer. This put me in a great fear, and I crawled under cover of the nearest live oak, and squatted there, hearkening, as silent as a mouse. Another voice answered, and then the first voice, which I now recognized to be Silver's, once more took up the story, and ran on for a long while in a stream, only now and again interrupted by the other. By the sound, they must have been talking earnestly, and almost fiercely, but no distinct word came to my hearing. At last the speakers seemed to have paused, and perhaps to have sat down, for not only did they cease to draw any nearer, but the birds themselves began to grow more quiet and to settle again to their places in the swamp. And now I began to feel that I was neglecting my business, that since I had been so foolhardy as to come ashore with these desperadoes, the least I could do was to overhear them at their councils, and that my plain and obvious duty was to draw as close as I could manage, under the favorable ambush of the crouching trees. I could tell the direction of the speakers pretty exactly, not only by the sound of their voices, but by the behavior of the few birds that still hung in alarm above the heads of the intruders. Crawling on all fours, I made steadily but slowly towards them, till at last, raising my head to an aperture among the leaves, I could see clear down into a little green dell beside the marsh, and closely set about with trees, where Long John Silver and another of the crew stood face to face in conversation. The sun beat full upon them. Silver had thrown his hat beside him on the ground, and his great, smooth, blonde face, all shining with heat, 
was lifted to the other man's in a kind of appeal. Mate, he was saying, it's because I thinks gold dust of you. Gold dust, and you may lay to that. If I hadn't took to you like pitch, do you think I'd have been here a warning of you? All's up. You can't make nor mend. It's the Savior neck that I'm a-speaking, and if one of the wild ones knew it, where'd I be, Tom? Now tell me, where'd I be? Silver, said the other man, and I observed he was not only red in the face, but spoke as hoarse as a crow, and his voice shook, too, like a taut rope. Silver, says he, you're old and you're honest, or has the name for it. And you've money, too, which lots of poor sailors hasn't. And you're brave, or I'm mistook. And will you tell me you'll let yourself be led away with that kind of a mess of swabs? Not you. As sure as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand. If I turn again my duty... And then all of a sudden he was interrupted by a noise. I had found one of the honest hands. Well, here, at that same moment, came news of another. Far away out in the marsh there arose, all of a sudden, a sound like the cry of anger, then another on the back of it, and then one horrid, long-drawn scream. The rocks of the spyglass re-echoed it a score of times. The whole troop of marsh birds rose again, darkening heaven with a simultaneous whirr, and long after that death yell was still ringing in my brain, Silence had re-established its empire, and only the rustle of the redescending birds and the boom of the distant surges disturbed the languor of the afternoon. Tom had leaped at the sound, like a horse at the spur, but Silver had not winked an eye. He stood where he was, resting lightly on his crutch, watching his companion like a snake about to spring. John! said the sailor, stretching out his hand. Hands off, cried Silver, leaping back a yard as if, as it seemed to me, with the speed and security of a trained gymnast. Hands off, if you like, John Silver, said the other. It's a black conscience that can make you feared of me, but in heaven's name, tell me, what was that? That, returned Silver, smiling away, but warier than ever, his eye a mere pinpoint in his big face, but gleaming like a crumb of glass. That? Oh, I reckon that'll be Alan. And at this port, Tom flashed out like a hero. Alan, he cried, then rest his soul for a true seaman. And as for you, John Silver, long you've been a mate of mine, but your mate of mine no more. If I die like a dog, I'll die in my duty. You've killed Alan, have you? Kill me too, if you can, but I defies you. And with that, this brave fellow turned his back directly on the cook and set off walking for the beach. But he was not destined to go far. With a cry, John seized the branch of a tree, whooped the crutch out of his armpit, and sent that uncouth missile hurtling through the air. It struck poor Tom, point foremost, and with stunning violence, right between the shoulders in the middle of his back. His hands flew up, he gave a sort of gasp, and fell.
Whether he were injured much or little, none could ever tell. Like enough to judge from the sound, his back was broken on the spot. But he had no time given him to recover. Silver, agile as a monkey, even without leg or crutch, was on the top of him next moment and had twice buried his knife up to the hilt in that defenseless body. From my place of ambush, I could hear him pant loud as he struck the blows. I do not know what it rightly is to faint, but I do know that for the next little while the whole world swam away from before me in a whirling mist. Silver and the birds and the tall spyglass hilltop going round and round and topsy-turvy before my eyes, and all manner of bells ringing and distant voices shouting in my ear. When I came again to myself, the monster had pulled himself together, his crutch under his arm, his hat upon his head, just before his tom lay motionless upon the sword. But the murderer minded him not a whit, cleansing his blood-stained knife the while upon a wisp of grass. Everything else was unchanged, the sun still shining mercilessly on the steaming marsh and the tall pinnacle of the mountain. And I could scarce persuade myself that murder had been actually done, and a human life cruelly cut short a moment since before my eyes. But now John put his hand into his pocket, brought out a whistle, and blew upon it several modulated blasts that rang far across the heated air. I could not tell, of course, the meaning of the signal, but it instantly awoke my fears. More men would be coming. I might be discovered. They had already slain two of the honest people. After Tom and Alan, might not I come next? Instantly, I began to extricate myself and crawl back again, with what speed and silence I could manage, to the more open portion of the wood. As I did so, I could hear hails coming and going between the old buccaneer and his comrades, and this sound of danger lent me wings. As soon as I was clear of the thicket, I ran as never as I never ran before, scarce minding the direction of my flight, so long as it led me from the murderers, and as I ran, fear grew and grew upon me, until it turned into a kind of frenzy. Indeed, could anyone be more entirely lost than I? When the gun fired, how should I dare go down to the boats among those fiends, still smoking from their crime? Would not the first of them who saw me wring my neck like a snipe's? Would not my absence itself be an evidence to them of my alarm and therefore of my fatal knowledge? It was all over, I thought. Goodbye to the Hispaniola. Goodbye to the squire, the doctor, and the captain. There was nothing left for me but death by starvation or death by the hands of the mutineers. All this while, as I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice I had drawn near to the foot of the little hill with the two peaks and had got into a part of the island where the live oaks grew more widely apart and seemed more like forest trees in their bearing and dimensions. Mingled with these were a few scattered pines, some fifty, some nearer seventy feet high. The air, too, smelt more freshly than down beside the marsh. And here a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart.
Before we go, I want to remind listeners that we're always open to submissions to this podcast. We read published and unpublished works by known and unknown authors, mostly unknown, and we love variety. You can send us family-friendly essays, poems, short stories, book chapters, jokes, quotes, funny kid sayings, the sky's the limit. Well, almost. We do reserve the right to decide what's appropriate for the podcast. And we feel our arrangement is a win-win for authors and for us. You don't pay us to broadcast your writings on the airwaves uh, to our many listeners, and we don't pay you to include your work on Let Me Tell You a Story. So please send your submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Again, that's story at beckyliles.com. A few quotes at the end here. This one about grannies. And I hope I don't destroy this name, This the one who wrote this. Kangana Renat. We love our granny because she is our granny. We value her. We don't remember anyone's face from our childhood, but we love our granny's face. And about Thanksgiving, being, having gratitude. Thanksgiving Day is a jewel to set in the hearts of honest men, but be careful that you do not take the day and leave out the gratitude. That's E.P. Powell. Joy is the simplest form of gratitude. Karl Barth. Look back in forgiveness, forward in hope, down in compassion, and up with gratitude. That's Zig Ziglar. And one more by Dean Jackson. When a child gives you a gift, even if it is a rock they just picked up, exude gratitude. It might be the only thing they have to give and they have chosen to give it to you. And you have chosen to listen to us, and we are thankful. To echo Steve, thanks for listening. And we always want to say that at the end. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.